Please welcome Gordon Lloyd to be your teacher. Well, it's, it's great to be here in the shadows of the Independence Hall, the most sacred ground and political ground in America. So, it's, um, so, so if I turn my back on you and look there, it's because I revere them and don't know you. And <laughs> all right, it's my task to, and joyful one, to take you through the convention in three sessions. Several years ago, when, uh, um, when Chris and I were doing one together, it, it just occurred to me that, uh, that when you pick up this book, it just looks like a bunch of words, and, which it is. But the question is, how do you get into the text? And how do you make it accessible and readable and manageable? And it's about 15 years ago, I decided, maybe not quite that long, to treat it as a drama, even though we knew what the outcome was, we would try to treat it as a drama. And the more I read it, the more I thought of Plato's Republic and the various acts and scenes, etc. So I tried breaking it down into four acts with various scenes, and that is reproduced on the website. And usually I try to do the four acts in four sessions, but we will speed it up a bit and do the four acts in three sessions. The four acts are simply my way of serializing it, the material so that you can get into it and there's a theme to each act and then there's a point to each scene. You can change the scenes. That's, that's sort of the editorial license that the, that the storyteller has going for it. Madison doesn't do it, right? So that's part of interpreting what goes on. And I think that it's a fairly accurate interpretation and the point is to get students and adults into the text so that they can follow what is going on. So that's point number one that I will, I will try and guide you through over the next three sessions, this four-act drama with the various scenes as a way of trying to make it accessible and interesting and hopefully dramatic. The other point that I realized very quickly as I was going through the, the notes of the Federal Convention <clears throat> and try to make the material readable and accessible, that every single day there's a practical issue under consideration, or more than one practical issue. There's some resolution or proposition or amendment or proposal that's on the books. And if you can keep that proposal or amendment or proposition or resolution in front of you, then that makes it a lot easier to realize what the heck is going on because it provides the context. Thus, one of the things that I've done also on the website is to produce a day-by-day -day account of what goes on. And it's not just he said this or he said that, but rather Proposition 1A, Proposition 1B, Proposition 2A, Proposition 2B. Not so that you just become you know, immersed in propositions, but rather, oh, I see it now. This is what is going on. And that, I hope, opens a door for you that there's a connection between something which is very mundane and practical that has to be decided on and arguments which are made, which sometimes can go way off. And you wonder, what the heck are they talking about? And the answer is Proposition 4A. Well, what has that got to do with anything? And so you start introducing yourself to a set of questions. So those two introductory remarks, namely, one, acts and scenes to make it accessible, 
and two propositions always on the table. Let me, let me begin. The way in which I want to begin is as um, like a, a preface, the, a prologue. And uh, there was once a British comedian by the name of Frankie Howard who... Uh, uh, he, the, the show was called Up Pompeii, and he was a slave in, in ancient Rome. And he would always begin with the prologue. And he never got off the prologue by the time the show was over, which was part of the humor. He said, oh, yes, right, the prologue. But I promise I'm going to get off the prologue and into the various acts and scenes and then maybe have time tomorrow to do an epilogue uh, for, for, to, to show you where it goes from here. But the prologue is the following. The very same Continental Congress sitting there that declared independence on July the 4th, 1776, issued a mandate, an encouragement to the various colonies. Independence is coming. Um, be prepared to be no longer part of a colonial empire. Um, you are going to be independent states. That's interesting in itself. What gave the Congress the authorization to be able to send that message is part of, the, part of our story and narrative of the rule of law versus consent of the government and how the two fit together. But the Congress did. And right away, in fact, before July the 4th, Virginia declared its independence. And between 1776 and 1780, what you get... 13 colonies becoming 13 states and becoming rather robust, shall we say, with regard to their state and local politics. On the other hand, the Continental Congress decided on its own internally to try to come up with a document or articles of union that would be the framework, the structural framework for these 13 states on a continental basis. And they did it themselves. John Dickinson was a very big part of, of, of that enterprise. And they chatted right there in that room, and they came up with the Articles of Confederation. But one of the features of the Articles was that it would not become effective until all 13 state legislatures agreed. Of course, <clears throat> that required 13 state legislatures to be in existence in order to agree, which wasn't too difficult because by 1780, all 13 had been formed. But there was a, 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 some disputes, particularly over land and commerce and taxes between the various emerging states. And that held up the passage of the Articles. But eventually, they were passed. And so what we have is this. On the one hand, swift, um, state and local, robust state and local, active state and local, in operation within four years, and non-robust, non-active, tentative, lately endorsed Articles of Confederation on the other. Well, <clears throat> what, um, what, can we, what, what can we gather from this prologue of these two events or activities that are taking place? Well, at the robust state level, we get what we might call um, local, local republicanism a sort of decentralized republicanism emerging, sometimes called Whig theory. And this Whig theory goes something like this. Liberty is in danger from the corruption of power. Long before Lord Acton made his famous remark, Whigs were saying, 
power corrupts and absolute power has a tendency to corrupt absolutely. The problem, in other words, is politics. And there is something about political temptation which leads us into political evil. And if that is the case, then what we need to do is to put a straitjacket of sorts, um, have a close leash, close rein on those whom we elect. Even the fact that we elect people is not going to be enough. We need to use the Whig notion of, we need auxiliary precautions. You will come across that phrase in the Federalist Papers used in a different way. But what Whigs are saying is elections are not enough because power corrupts. So we need auxiliary precautions. And what kind of auxiliaries are we talking about? Well, we need to make sure that the terms are short. One year in office, where annual elections end, tyranny begins. What else do we need to do? Rotation in office. Term limits. We need to keep that close leash on our politicians, lest they become corrupt. Also, Republican theory tells us that at the heart of republicanism, just read your John Locke, which you have this morning and last night, the creation of the legislative branch is the single most important act of, of sort of founding politics. So John Locke fusses over the legislature and then, of course, makes exceptions and whatnot when talking about the executive. But it's the, it, it is the structure of the legislature which is the most important. And so what you will see in Whig theory as it emerges in these state constitutions, is that the main power will reside in the legislature. And they will have um, fairly democratic, for, for the history of the, of the time, uh, right to vote and right to be in office. But the most important point of this structural issue is the lack of independence and clout in the governor's office or the, the new executive office and the judiciary. That is, th- there is no such thing as a robust separation of powers at the state and local level. It is all grounded in the legislature. And you would have some um, states giving some power to the legislature and some power to the judiciary, but you're going to have to look for it. On the one hand, you've got um, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had one branch. It said, why do we need to even have two branches of government now that there are only us democratic chickens here? Bicameralism is something that they inherited from Britain with the house of the common folk and the house of the lordly folk. There are only us common folk here. Therefore, we only need one branch. Moreover, we don't need a chief executive. That sounds like king stuff. To us, and we don't need a judiciary. We can handle it all ourselves. And there's it, no accident that the the, sta- the state of Pennsylvania actually met upstairs during the convention, and they can all meet upstairs because there's only one of them. So they don't they, they didn't need to have a separate independent executive office. That's on the one extreme. On the other extreme, you have places like Massachusetts, which is the only place to give the governor a veto power over, 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 over the legislature. In all the state, other states, the governor was elected by the legislature. And in, Pencil, in, in Massachusetts, the governor was elected directly by the people. And so you have, on the, those are the two sort of parameters, but most of the Whig theory uh, was, was based more on the legislature 
unless on the Massachusetts model of a potentially strong executive. Now, that executive would only be in for one year, elected directly by the people with the potentiality of a veto. And the Massachusetts Constitution also provided for a limited role of judicial review. That is, the right of the courts to review an act of the legislature and deem whether or not it should be um, held unconstitutional. It wasn't ex extensive, but it was there. Um, one other thing about the Massachusetts Constitution, which is interesting, is that it, it was the only one that was submitted to the people for ratification. And all the others were done by the assemblies. They, the assemblies assembled and wrote the Constitution and said it was good and put it into practice. So it was a, it was a democratic act of people who are elected, but not elected specifically for the purpose, and, not, and then didn't submit their, 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 their product for the ratification of the people. But Massachusetts did. So to summarize, you've got Whig theory, which is basically power corrupts, short terms of office rotation, Emphasis on the legislature, emphasis on the lower houses of the legislature, most clearly seen in Pennsylvania, deviating slightly from state to state, whereas Virginia would have an upper house for four years, but a governor who was elected and dependent, no judiciary, all the way to Massachusetts, which did at least toy with the notion of some kind of separation of powers, and, um, which, 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 which represented the extreme to which Whig theory would go. Okay. In short, Whig theory placed the emphasis on majority rule as expressed through the legislature with very little restraint by other branches on the rule of the majority. The majority didn't, was not viewed as the problem. It was the representatives or the politicians who were viewed as the problem. If we shift now to the Articles of Confederation, what we have there is not a government, but a league of these 13 states. And if we were to go through the Articles, I think <coughs> we should try to remember five points. I say five because I can't remember more than five, so it's for my benefit. The first is structurally, there is no such thing as an American people. So where do you and I fit in, the people? The answer is we fit in as Virginians or Pennsylvanians, but there's no such thing as an American yet. They may be talk about what does it mean to be an American, but structurally, there is no such manifestation of an American political mind as it appears structurally. So it's 13 states. That's the first thing. It is an alliance between 13 state legislatures, structurally. How about, second point, power? Well, the union can only exercise that power which is expressly delegated. If it ain't there, it can't be done. And among the two things that couldn't be done because they weren't there was the regulation of interstate commerce and an independent base for taxation, which meant that you would have interstate commercial disputes that had to be uh, 
settle in a cumbersome manner. Part of the longest section of the Articles of Confederation is this cumbersome machinery which is, which is created to, to try to settle these interstate disputes because there's no such power in the center to say, bam. So you have to go through this long negotiation which, which has to take place. And secondly, since they didn't have the power of taxation, that Congress had to go, in effect, with the cap in hand to each state and ask for um, requisitions and, uh, and, and money to be raised. And that led into disputes as to, well, how are you going to allocate how much money you're going to get from which state and by, and why, by what criteria are you going to use it? And that led to various disputes. And, um, and the question was, well, shall we base... See, in America... One side of the coin is representation. The other side is taxation. Sometimes it comes up taxation, which means then you have to flip it to see representation. One time it's representation, you have to flip it to see taxation. And so what the articles, the folks at the articles came up with as as an informal agreement was was known as the three-fifths clause as, as a way of raising revenue for the purposes of funding the Congress. There was no discussion under the articles about the merits and demerits of the question of slavery. That never came up as a, as a serious question because it was not deemed to be an issue that was going to be handled or not handled at all at that, at, at that level. The question of three-fifths emerged as an issue of representation over against raising revenue. The representation question... Um, which, uh, which is linked to number one, but we might as well say it's, it's a third issue, is that each state was represented equally, regardless of size of population. So the representation set issue was settled, one state, one vote. So the question then became the, the point about taxation, and you had to come up with a, a, an appropriate method, because it was very difficult to... I mean, how are you going to tax... Are you going to tax Massachusetts in the same way you're going to tax Virginia and Rhode Island, even though each one has one vote? That becomes complicated because you're not going to base the taxation on population because there's no such thing as population. It's all states. So how do you do it? And the idea was you're going to base it on their wealth. And then how do you measure wealth? And that's where the three-fifths clause came in. Okay. The fourth point is that supermajorities, supermajorities were needed in order to even exercise the limited power that was expressly granted to these states that only were represented and represented equally in, the, in, in this article. Which meant, in other words, that a power to um, coin some money, for example, would require three-quarters votes. You say, well, that's, that's very good, isn't it? One, since something's going to affect us all, it requires all of us, or pretty much all of us, to agree. Yeah, but is that any way to run a government? Well, of course it isn't any way to run a government. But who says we're creating a government? Well, I guess only those people who want to think about an American want to think that it's a government. It's weak and it's, it's ineffective. That's no way to run things. Precisely, we don't want things to run. We're not interested in governing. We're interested in an alliance and satisfying all the component parts of the alliance and making sure that the allies remain allies. And how do you make sure that you remain allies? You don't ram something down somebody's throat unwillingly. You want to bring them along. Consensus toward unanimity, if possible. So that to get things done required supermajorities. And the fifth and final point that I would like to mention, that if you wanted to change anything, and you'd have to change anything if you didn't see it there. Because 
to answer the question, this is one of the questions we'll be looking at throughout the next three days, two days, is how do you interpret silence? I mean, if it ain't there, does that mean you can do it? Or if it's not there, does that mean you can't do it? Under the articles, if it ain't there, it means you can't do it. That's precisely what it means. Therefore, if you want to do it, you have to receive proper authorization to do so, which means you have to amend the document. Are you telling me every single time you want to do something that's not there, you have to change the document explicitly? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's no way to run a government. Boy, you're getting it. It's exactly. We're not creating a government. We're creating an alliance, a league, a friendship. So, that means then to amend this document, you have to have the unanimity. First of all, to change the document, you have to amend it. And then to amend it requires unanimous agreement. Well, there was always one state by the name of Rogue Island. (laughs) And Rogue Island regularly would say, no, we don't want any increased power over interstate commerce. No. <clears throat> we don't want any independent taxation. And Rhode Island was one of the two states that said, no, we're not buying the three-fifths clause. Um, and, and again, I want to remind you that despite... I mean, I'm just reading, I'm finishing a book now. A lot of people are, are trying to get through. If you have six months of your life to devote to it, it's by a guy called um, Amar, and he's this uh, um, biography of the Ameri- American Constitution. And um, one of the things that he... He's virtually obsessed about is the three-fifths clause. And, um, and anyway, the, he, 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 he pumps meaning into it, which is not there. That doesn't mean to say that meaning hasn't been pumped into it later, but you can't find the meaning that he gives to it in, in the Constitutional Convention. Um, so it'll have to come from elsewhere to, get to, to learn that meaning. Um, so where are we? We're at a point now where we're at the end of the prologue. And the end of the prologue is the following. We've got well-functioning, robust, majoritarian governments operating at the state and local level with very little restraint on the majorities. The democratic revolution, consent of the governed has been won. The consent of the governed formula in the Declaration of Independence has been clearly activated in Massachusetts with the ratification The consent of the governed has come to the fore in other state constitutions in the form of elected assembly people creating the form of government under which which the people wish to live, another principle of the declaration. And the purpose of government is is clearly to secure rights. And virtually half of the state state constitutions have their constitutions prefaced by a declaration of rights. And in in the declaration of rights, they were very, very similar to the Declaration of Independence, composed of two features. One, abstract natural rights, uh, including such things as the right to, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, and translated, that usually meant in the state constitutions, the right to choose the form of government under which you live, political liberty, the right to choose the way to worship God or religious liberty, and the right to the fruit of your labor and a job or or economic liberty. And those three liberties were expressed in terms of declaratory rights, which it was the purpose of government to secure. And then you had 
and that le- legitimate government was based on the consent of the government, etc. And then you had a whole bunch of common law rights, or traditional, what is known as rights of Englishmen, from no cruel and unusual punishment to no unreasonable searches and seizures. And six or seven of the state constitution had, had these declaratory rights as prefatory. And the reason why they were prefatory and declaratory was it was sort of like a mission statement. This is who we are. This is what we stand for. The other constitutions opened up their constitutions. And in the sections dealing with powers, where it said the legislature had the power to do, do this, do this, do this, and do this, following it, there would be some statement about what the legislatures couldn't do. And that's where a Bill of Rights emerged at, in, in the... In this, in the um, so it would say that the legislature cannot do this. The legislature, for example, can pass no um, ex post facto law, or the legislature can't pass any bill of attainder. So that they have these two versions, a prefatory bill of rights as a mission statement or declaration of rights, and then inserted in the text of these documents a statement of... of um, of rights in a sense of what the legislature couldn't do. In fact, the New York Constitution inserted the entire Declaration of Independence in its Constitution to show you the extent to which there was a complete compatibility. That's what we have at the state and local level. At the continental level, we have this weak alliance. Structurally, the states are only involved. People are not involved at all. Equal states, one branch could only do those things which are explicitly granted, supermajorities plus um, unanimity for uh, for amendment. Between 1783 and 1787, a number of events occurred. One of the events that historians have traditionally paid, I think, a bit too much attention to is Shays' Rebellion. and I've read and read and reread many, many things about Shays' Rebellion. But the most recent thing is that Shays' Rebellion is being presented by certain revisionist historians as the first, first example of the civil rights movement, where um, uh, people are standing up for their rights against um, an elitist um, um, oligarchic government in Massachusetts. Uh, there's, that, there's that theory. Um, and there's the other theory which has some credence to it that if it weren't for Shays' Rebellion we would not have had a constitutional convention because it's the fact that the rule of law broke down in Massachusetts with Daniel Shays and his debtors going and busting up law courts and refusing to pay their debts which scared people and scared people so much from, from General Knox writing to Washington and every, all the, again the elite class theory of, of American politics is coming through here, the progressive historians, which you've heard about and will hear more about. The, uh, that, that somehow that scared the upper crust across America and re- made them realize that uh, something had to be done. And that thesis gets full-blown with Charles Beard and, and James Allen Smith about a, a 80 years ago, in which you get this theory that the Constitutional Convention was a Thermidorian reaction. And um, translated, that means that the Constitutional Convention was made up of a whole bunch of people who were, um, in effect, oligarchic 
wealthy folks who thought that the democratic spirit of the revolution had gone too far, that Daniel Shays represents that democratic spirit unleashed, and it was time to bring back the leash on this grassroots kind of movement. Now, why the word Thermidorian? Because that's that's an import from France. And if if there's a, a specter which haunts American historiography, it's the French Revolution. And it haunts both the right as well as the left. I'm just talking about it haunting the left at the moment. But it haunts the right as well. Uh, the haunting of the left is, that, is the following. The French Revolution got off to a great start. And it had all these high ideals in 1789. And then along came Robespierre, the reign of terror, and a counter-revolution. One of the things the French really did as a revolution was not only did they change the street names and invent the Frank but they also changed that Catholic calendar, that superstitious thing, according to the French. And so they made it natural. And making it natural meant that they went with the seasons and nature, so fire and heat and warmth and snow, as the British would say, sneezy, wheezy, snoozy, and everything else that's French that uh, can be uh, poked fun at. And so the French changed their calendar and made, every, made it all rational. So every month would be 30 days. What do you do the other five days of the year? You celebrate the fact that you have made everything rational. And so the Thermidorian reaction was this counter-revolution which took place in the month of Thermidor. Right? So that's the name of the, the month, Thermidor. Um, yeah, that's the month. Uh, I think it means snow. Um, but even if it means fire, it's, it's the month that it occurred in. <laughs> Thank goodness Napoleon had one good sensible thing to do and change it back. At least, look, the Americans didn't get rid of names like that. I mean, they still had Lancaster and York, right? Still around there, right? All Americans did was drop the U in color, drop the U in labor, right? and kept the U in glamour. So I don't have to figure that one out. But it's a Thermidorian reaction model that somehow this convention that gathered was a reactionary convention reacting against the popular spirit as shown by Shays' Rebellion. I mean, that's that model. Now, to talk about the specter of the French Revolution haunting the right, is, uh, there's a group of people who are... I think they call themselves paleoconservatives. Uh, they, it's not that name which is called uh, uh, negatively upon them. They embrace it. People who are are inspired by um, Russell Kirk in the conservative movement, and they see Edmund Burke as their their hero. And and Edmund Burke's real claim to fame, of course, is that he wrote profoundly against the French Revolution. And so one of the things that the paleoconservatives do is get very nervous about the Declaration of Independence. And when they see the first paragraph and they see the last paragraph, they see the French Revolution looming. And so one of the things that paleos tend to do when they read the, French Revol- read the Declaration of Independence is to ignore the first paragraph and ignore the last paragraph and, and, and look at everything in between. And, um, and that's the way they can live with the, with the Declaration. Well, I think those are, that, that's a European specter which is haunting two versions of American historiography. And I think we're much better off looking at it unfold from within America um, before we start invoking European models um, to to understand American politics, which is what 
the progressive have actually done through the whole introduction of, 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 of class as the concept for understanding um, the, uh, the origin of American politics. I would suggest that far more than Shea's Rebellion, although it may have moved certain people at the margins, for who knows what moves every single person. But I would think that looking at Madison's vices is far more important as a theoretical approach to why we were here in 1787. If you take a look at Madison's vices, he goes through them and he lists a whole bunch about what's wrong with the articles. And what's wrong with the articles? Well, we've just seen five things that he could say that's wrong with the articles. People are not involved. He can't do anything except what is expressly stated. Uh, it takes super majorities to get anything done. You have to amend it. You have to get unanimous agreement. Uh, it, it can't keep the states uh, in line with each other. Um, it can't fulfill its obligations overseas. Those are the kind of standard things that one would expect a critique of the articles to be. That is, it's, it's not worthy of, of, of what we're capable of becoming. But interestingly, Madison saves his longest and, and um, most uh, um, important and serious critique for last. And it's a critique against the state legislatures. And what is he criticizing them about? He's saying that we have seen a new phenomena emerge across America in the last seven to ten years. And that phenomena is majority tyranny at the state legislative level. And he gives, he gives some examples. One example he gives is that in Virginia, the majority has uh, exercised its power to try to reestablish the Anglican Church. And um, Madison says that's a violation of the right to conscience. Um, he says also that in various spots, majorities have passed um, easy money legislation, paper money legislation. And that way, debtors have been able to avoid the legitimate payments to creditors where they took on contracts and are now violating contracts, which is then a violation of the principle of private property. Also, majorities are forming and they are passing laws which they're saying, just because we're in a majority, we're, we're able to do it. So Madison is saying, look, I realize that consent of the governed suggests majority rule. But that very majority rule derives from the Declaration of Independence uh, principles which you've been going through the last 24 hours, which principles all point to the notion that, that, um, that all of us, in one way or another, however it gets translated, rough, ready, and whatever, have a right, or at least some kind of right, to uh, religious liberty, political liberty, and economic liberty. And these three rights are being violated by the very majorities which have been created as a result of the Declaration. We've got more than a paradox here, folks. We've got a problem of considerable dimension. And that's, that's the problem. The problem is an issue of liberty and justice. And it's a problem because we won the battle in 1776, but we're facing a new issue. 
And we aren't prepared to face that issue for two reasons. We can't face it at the state level because we have robust state legislatures. And we can't face it at the continental level because we have no, no, nothing robust at all. In fact, Madison's biggest vice, I shouldn't say that, Jimmy doesn't have any vices. Madison's claim that the worst vice in the American system is the vice that the Articles of Confederation protect the state legislatures. It's not so much that the Articles of Confederation are weak and imbecilic and can't get the job done. Yes, of course it can't get the job done. But its real supreme vice is it protects the state legislatures where the real problem is. Thus, we have to alter the Articles of Confederation in order to solve the problem that state legislatures are generating. That's why we're coming to Philadelphia. Well, excuse me. On the road to Philadelphia, there are many obstacles. That is, how do we get to talk about this? How do we get to <coughs> handle this problem? And there have been many failed attempts. One of the more successful attempts was at Annapolis. And historians will point out many things. Among the things that they will point out is there was less than a majority of the states in attendance. True. Um, some states arrived late. True. Um, this Annapolis Convention um, was, was, uh, uh, was called by these commissioners to, to, to get together to talk about interstate disputes. True. They ended up recommending a grand convention to be held in May next in Philadelphia, probably in the assembly hall, and uh, the state legislature just have to go upstairs and do something else while we got along with it. True. Whoever gave them the authority to do that, says the historiography. And the answer would be the right of the people to choose the form of government under which they might live. Now, you don't want to get that rolling around too fast and too loud at every single year. But now is a good time to get it um, in, in, in the, while the revolution is still alive, while the spirit is still there, the opportunity to do something. Because America is full of winning opportunities and missing opportunities, just like, well, not your life, because you never miss an opportunity, I can tell. Uh, you never make a mistake. You always are right on the ball, statesmanship every moment of the day, being there. But these were mere mortals who have to deal with taking the opportunity and missing the opportunity. And I think, really, when we think about this period, I think what Madison is saying is, we've got to get on top of this. Otherwise, we will miss the opportunity to secure and fulfill the revolution. Because historians, once again, are going to be criticizing, show me what is wrong. The birds still tweet. The wheat still grows. The British were defeated. What's so bad? Where, where is this long train of abuses that supposedly must be shown before, uh, before this uh, kind of pushy action must take place and whiny conduct must occur? Uh, and I think Madison's answer, which is what's going to be my main theme of this Constitutional Convention, it is not so much that it's the, uh, the long train of abuses. Toot, 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 right? It's not, it's not the long train. But it is the lost opportunity that unless you grasp it, unless you grasp the moment, as Hamilton's first paragraph 
of Federalist I suggests. I mean, this is the turning point in the history of the world. And unless you grasp it, it could well be a long train of abuses. And, and so therefore, why wait for the long train to arrive? Just, you know, build it. Well, I don't quit that analogy. Um, so that I think the, the, point I'm, the point I'm getting at is that, is, that it, is that the Annapolis Convention called for this grand convention on the basis of the declaration in which it is the right of the people to choose the form of government under which they live. And half the states went right in line, and Virginia was the leader. And half the other states didn't go in line because they thought that was a bit too um, um, oh, reckless, a bit too uh, imprudent, and uh, they required a bit more uh, assurance. And that assurance came in February of 1787 with the Congress, which was then sitting in New York. And, um, and by the way, it had moved from here to New York for safety reasons during the war with Britain. And in, and in New York, the, the Congress said in February 1787, we hereby authorize the, this grand convention, so go ahead and meet and the other states fell in line. So that you got the bolder states taking the lead, led by Virginia, and the less bold states wanting some more formal authorization from the existing organs of government, say Connecticut. And, uh, and so you got these two views. And, and those two views manifest themselves at the convention. One, the view that's the bold view, those are the ones who are more of the framers and the movers and the shakers. The other few are the more cautious type, who want to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and everything is very clear. Uh, <clears throat> part of the problem becomes, well, what exactly does the mandate say? So just as, well, what or who authorized the Annapolis folks to go ahead and call this convention? The next question is, well, what exactly did the Congress authorize? Well, it authorized that the convention meet and to, in effect, fix the articles. Now, does that mean if you find that fixing them means breaking them, does that fix them? Or does fix them mean keep them and just make them work? But if you can't make them work because <laughs> you want more from the union, then what do you do? So there's a certain ambiguity about the mandate. The ma and because the mandate says fix the articles so that they meet the exigencies of the union. Well, you can have a debate about the exigencies, the union, and the mandate, and that, you will discover, will become a big part of the conversation in about two, three days when Lucas and Chris take you through the Federalist Papers and the whole issue of what precisely is, was the mandate, and were the founding fathers, in fact, uh, lawbreakers. And if they were lawbreakers, then what, how, how can you justify it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, sometimes that's more to do with historiography than it has to do with history, but that becomes an issue. Well, we meet in Philadelphia. Not everybody is here. But one of the things that happens while, we're, while the folks are meeting for the, for the convention is that Madison and the Virginians gather around here and Tomorrow night, weather permitting, we'll take a, we'll take a tour of Philadelphia and uh, <clears throat> write down 
Oh, right down there is, uh, was Robert Morris's townhouse. George Washington stayed there. It's no longer there. It's been erased. Um, but across the, there was uh, Mrs. House's uh, boarding house. And that's where James Madison and four other people stayed. If you see the size of it, you'll wonder uh, how they ever managed to get in there. But then you realize that Jim, Jimmy Madison was only five foot 210, blah, 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 blah. So you could fit into anything. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll go around and we'll see all these, all these places. Uh, George Mason was here. And the whole, all the Virginians were here. And George Mason went, and went down to the Catholic Church and took a look at it and heard this little bell. And he thought it was a puppet show. And all kinds of good things were going on during that week. And uh, <clears throat> the other great good thing that was happening was that, uh, is that, that Madison, the, the delegation, came up with a, a plan. And it's sometimes called the Randolph Plan, as the governor of, of Virginia, Randolph, introduced it. And sometimes it's called the Virginia Plan because the plan came out of Virginia. And there are five points about this plan that I'd like to suggest that we take a look at. Point number one is that structurally, the states are not involved. It's based on the people. And um, this is very, very important because it, in effect, is challenging the very structural basis of the Articles of Confederation. Point number two is that there is an attempt to have a separation of powers, unlike the Articles, which only has one branch. But also, unlike some of the state, like state constitutions, it's starting to think about well, maybe we ought to, to, to um, beef up the executive and the judiciary a bit. Maybe that's part of the problem at the state level. And so you get the outlines of uh, a legislative branch with an upper house, um, with the lower house representing the people. And I have to put an asterisk because we'll get back to that in a moment. The people and an asterisk. And the upper house is also based on proportional representation. Just like most of the states now that have two, two branches, like California, for example, has 80 members of the Assembly and has 40 members of the Senate, so that the senatorial districts are precisely what two Assembly districts are. So it's the upper house is based on the people, and the lower house is based on the people, and you have to ask the question, well, how do the people check the people? And the answer is, well, by having fewer of them and having them in there for longer terms, et cetera, and wait until you hear the improved science of politics, and we'll get to that later. But here's the outline of the improved science of politics taking place in the Virginia plan of two chambers with both representing the people and supposedly doing something with each other. By the way, the only time the phrase checks and balances appears, as far as I know, in any literature at the founding, is as balances and checks, not checks and balances, and it occurs in Federalist Number 9 where it says legislative balances and checks. So bicameralism is where you get your real check and balance. It's, it's where, where one legislative branch is checking and balancing the other. And I think it's very helpful to see, to see the concept of check and balance as internal to legislative life. Uh, but you see then this separation of, of, you see the executive beginning to emerge, well, they're not quite willing to let the executive go full independent. It's going to be elected by the, by, the, by the legislature. But at least you're going to have some kind of president 
with some kind of powers. We don't know for how long the president's going to be there. We don't quite know how the president's going to be elected, or whether it's going to be one of them or two of them. But we're going to have a president in the Virginia plan. There's a judiciary. We don't quite know how far the powers are going to go. We don't know exactly how many judges or what the range is. But they're going to be there. And we'll talk about it. All right. Next is that there's something. What am I on? Two or three? That was two. Right. Good. Because I've got to run out of things. So, so number three is there's something called the Council of Revision. The Council of Revision is um, Madison's concoction, shall we say, is that before a bill becomes a law, it must be submitted for review to this council, which is made up of the president and a sufficient number of court judges. Now, this is before a bill becomes a law, right? You ask the question, well, why would Madison be interested in that? Because, folks, he says, part of the problem of legislative branches is that they make stupid laws, unwise legislation, unjust legislation, and they keep doing it year after year. Legislators have this propensity to make laws. Well, yeah, that's one way to put them out of business is to cut the annual sessions down to two months. But then they'll just hurry up and make everything happen in two months, get ten months vacation. They'll do the same thing. I won't go into California. It's, it's, um, uh, but, you know, bless them. The legislators of California have decided that it is, it is, it's in my protective interest that I wear a helmet when riding my horse in my backyard. I don't have a backyard. I don't have a horse. But it is in my interest, and if I violate the law, I face a fine of some, some, of some proportion. But, you know, they've got to do something in order to solve whatever problem comes up. Madison's point is... One impediment to this, this, act, this dangerous activity of legislative branches is to send every bill before it becomes a law to this council of revision that will sit down and look it over and say, no, no, we don't need it. We don't need it. Council of revision. Linked to this council of revision is the notion that every act of a state legislature can be, um, can be vetoed by Congress. Bef- so in effect, before a bill becomes a law at the state legislature, it has to be sent up to Congress, and Congress can look at it. And therefore, before they decide, it has to be sent to the Council on Revision. You, know, you can see what's happening here? Madison is going after the state legislatures. That's what's happening. That's the Virginia plan. The fourth point is, well, what can this new union do? Not only does it represent the people... Not only are you going to have separation of powers and also this council of revision, but what can this union do? And the answer is anything for which the states are incompetent. Oh, and what's that? Anything the states are incompetent to do. Ah, I see. Um, You're flushing the states down the Potomac, aren't you? Uh, Well, uh, yes. Um, or, 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 Or trying to trying to put them in their place because they're the problem. And then the final point, and they don't go into, they don't go into total detail on this, but they go into um, enough detail to suggest we need to get this in place, this plan in place, 
with the assistance of the consent of the governed. Now, I realize the mandate from Congress says, go back to Congress with your plan. But what we want to recommend when we go back to Congress with our plan is that Congress send it out to the people. Just like Massachusetts sent it out to their people, we want this Congress to send it out to the American people in some capacity, in some form, yet to be decided, but it's the principle at the moment. So what have we got? We've got a robust national government. (laughs) Somebody say, good? The story's not over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the plan, okay? And then from the end of May to the 5th of June, they talk about this plan, the delegates. They go through it. That's what I've called one of the scenes. Oh, by the way, they've set up certain rules for proceeding. And one of the most important rules they set up was the rule of secrecy, which historians have, have um, also made much use of. There are two sides to it. Um, secrecy. There's never anything good in secret. All the better to shaft you, my dear. That's the reason why we're doing it in secret, which fits in wonderfully the thesis that it's a bunch of oligarchs who are trying to hoist some kind of undemocratic constitution on an unsuspected proletariat. Of course, the proletariat didn't exist, but that doesn't bother anybody. (laughs) The case in favor of secrecy is that if you show a politician the camera, or you show the politician a newspaper, the politician will become eloquent rather than um, serious, and they'll play to the crowd. So that the way to get anything done of a serious nature is to go into executive session. So you've got these two theses. One is the executive session thesis, which I'm sure each of you have experienced in tenure decisions or very delicate matters where you wish to speak your mind and, and it be held privileged information over against the idea that or, uh, or all the cartoons of you know, the smoke-filled rooms and the caucuses where people are just making their wheelings and dealings behind the people, all the better to, to, um, to hoist uh, something inappropriate on the people. But they made this rule of secrecy. And uh, Madison, by the way, kept that rule seriously. He, these weren't released until after his death. So that's how serious he took that, um, that rule. Most of the delegates kept, uh, kept their word on this as to exactly what went on. But uh, it did help in the ratification debates that um, one member from each state who was here in Philadelphia attended the ratification debates and so could illuminate the, 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 the situation to the delegates, which was not violating the rule of secrecy. The rule of secrecy, strictly speaking, only held for the duration of the convention here. It didn't hold for afterwards. Madison was scrupulous, however, with regard to the rule of secrecy, okay. despite the fact that many people encouraged him to, um, to, 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 to publish these uh, earlier. All right, so they go through this, this document the first time. Well, what, what happens? Um, Madison loses on two important uh, um, occasions. The first loss was the argument that the upper house should be elected by the lower house. 
And that was part of his scheme for proportional representation. And he lost that one because Mr. Sherman said, the states have got to fit into the picture somehow. And uh, Madison said, well, you know, that's the problem. And Sherman says, well, we might as well just pack up right now because um, unless the states are in there in some way, it ain't going to fly. So they had a vote on it. And Madison uh, lost. And he said, a chasm was created in the plan. And then the very next day, the chasm was filled, and Mr. Sherman uh, got his way, which was that the state legislatures would select the upper house. So where are we? The Virginia plan begins with both the lower house and the upper house, right, excluding the states, both in terms of electing and in terms of representation. Sherman has just won a major concession. The delegates were not willing to exclude the states completely. The question is, how far were they willing to go? The second area that Madison didn't get too far on was his Council on Revision. And it's interesting to see the argument. The argument against the Council of Revision was made mainly by the Massachusetts delegates. And the argument goes like this. We're facing a conflict of interest. The conflict of interest is you're going to send a bill before it becomes a law. You're going to send it to a council of revision which is made up of the president and a sufficient number of judges. You're involving the judges in the policy-making process. That's going to be a conflict of interest because subsequently the judges may receive it as a case and controversy in which they're going to have to have subsequent review about its constitutionality. How can you have the judges involved in a situation where they're, they're, they're participating in the making of the law and later on deciding whether the law that was made was a, was a, was a constitutional law? In other words, it's the, what, what I find fascinating is, that, is, is, is the argument. That is, the argument is that... that the judges were expected to have some form of what we call judicial review. Now, I don't want to say that what we call judicial review today is what they would call judicial review. In fact, I'll go so far as to say there's a huge difference. But it is, I think, erroneous to fall into the very simple notion that judicial review was not created until Marbury versus Madison or that it took Marshall to create it, whatever it is or was, or it is not now. Or hopefully never will be ever again, but we can't go that far. Because, for example, if you really want to stick to the phrase judicial review, and you have to find the words judicial review in order for judicial review to be there, you won't find it in Marbury versus Madison. It appears in a law review article by Corwin at the turn of the 20th century. So therefore, we have to wait till the 20th century to find judicial review, which is probably correct, as, as we currently understand it. Having said all of that, it is very clear that the, that, that the Constitutional Convention understood because we had it in Massachusetts in embryo form. It was the Massachusetts delegates who articulated it there, saying the judges will have the opportunity to review it 
and exposit the law. That, that's all I want to go as far as, 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 as suggest. But, so what is the implication? The implication is the following. That Madison lost, and in losing, we get the argument in favor of some judicial review subsequently that the judges are excluded from the policy-making process previously. So what's left? The answer is the president. And that's the, that's the, the, the moment at the convention when the president is given the right to veto a bill before it becomes a law. And that, again, is Massachusetts. So the Massachusetts model of giving the governor the possibility of vetoing a bill before it becomes a law subject to an overturn of the veto comes into the Constitutional Convention, not as a Madisonian idea, but as a, shall we say, an amendment as, a, as an alteration in a Madisonian idea, which is to provide a joint council of prior review. Okay, those are the two things that Madison had modified in that first go-round. We're going out of the second go-round. And the second go-round goes from June the 6th to June the 11th. And June the 6th is a remarkable day. It's the day that political theorists love. You've got, there are various days, and you can see it yourself as you go through. Oh, now that's a good day. I wish I was there on that day. That was a real good one. Um, right. yeah, September the 17th, that's the best day of all. They all went home. <laughs> or, 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 the first few days were terrible days for Washington. If you read his diary, he says, these people aren't being responsible. They're not showing up. And somebody would come to him and say, it's the weather. Right. We have to put up with 100 degrees. Why can't they? <clears throat> and they'd have no air conditioning. The day that political theorists love is June the 6th. And it's the exchange between James Madison and Roger Sherman. And what's on the table? The answer is Proposition 4A. And what is Proposition 4A? Proposition 4A is what form of representation shall take place in the legislature. Madison has put forward a proposition. It should be the people who should be represented. And under the articles, the proposition was only the states should be represented. And you will recall Madison's greatest critique of the articles is that it's the states that are protected by the articles. And what is the greatest vice? We can't get to the state legislatures. And what does Madison say in the vices? He says, we have majority faction. What is a faction? It's a fact faction is where you have a, com a group with a common opinion, passion, interest, which acts and is motivated by such activity as to violate the rights of others and the common good. And he lists religious faction. He, re he lists uh, economic faction. He lists political faction. And he says, for better or for worse, um, religion is part of the problem. And uh, not all good, but we'll try and make it if we can, um, et cetera, et cetera. So what have we got to do, he says in the vices? We've got to get an extended orbit, extended sphere in which we have a multiplicity of opinions, passions, and interests backed up by a veto from the Congress. June the 6th, Madison makes exactly that argument. And he, in fact, goes, and I'll just read one part to you, which he doesn't mention in the vices. By the way, you will see, as Chris will take you through this, 
you'll see a, a remarkable uniformity between Madison's vices, that, 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 the last vice, which is the theoretical basis for why these folks are here, June the 6th, which is the theoretical argument as to why you have to, want to have popular representation in a legislature, not the states, to Federalist 10, which most of you have read. But Federalist 10 is the third or fourth go-round of the argument that, Ma- that Madison has been pushing through fr- from the... So why we get here, why we should have the Virginia plan, okay? And on June the 6th, Madison, um, among other things, says, we have seen a number of activities people have engaged in that brought liberty and justice. Interference with these were evils which had more, perhaps, than anything else produced this convention. Or is it to be supposed that Republican liberty could long exist under the abuses of it practiced in some of the states? Mr. Sherman had just said, the people are happier in small states than in large ones. And he had said, the objects of the union are few and can be expressly stated. And Madison responds, the people aren't happier in small states. They live under tyranny and injustice. Just read my vices. And the objects of union are rather larger than that. And you forget about faction. The smaller the community, the more easy it is to discover your nastiness. And the smaller the community, the easier it is to act on it. And we have seen, he says, the mere distinction of color made in the most enlightened period of time a ground of the most oppressive dominion ever exercised by man over man. In short, slavery. And he expresses it very, very clearly here as injustice. What has been the source of these unjust laws complained of among ourselves? Has it not been the real or supposed interest of the major number? Debtors have defrauded their creditors. The landed interest has borne harder than mercantile interest. The holders of one species of property have thrown a disproportion of taxes on the holders of another species. But Madison is waxing eloquently, practicing for Federalist 10. The one thing he doesn't say in Federalist 10 is the slavery issue. But it's important to see that he, he, he does not um, think that slavery can be just shift it away as a matter of, oh, just ignore it. It's a question of injustice. So the question becomes, how is it handled? Um, That's the exchange. What's on the table? Shall we have popular representation in a national assembly, or shall we continue with uh, what we've been doing, having an Articles of Confederation where states are represented equally in one chamber? And Madison seems to be carrying the day. But Sherman mounts an attack. On a June 11th, one of my favorite days, Sherman offers a compromise. And the compromise is the following. He says, why don't we have popular representation? All right, let's back up. Let's, let's be very, very clear. This is Mr. Sherman, uh, me being cl- Sherman helping me being clear. He says, why don't we go ahead and have the people elect the House. Mr. Madison, you've lost on the second one. I've won. We'll have the states elect the Senate. Now, Mr. Madison, you want the people to be represented in the House. Why don't we call the whole thing off and have the states represented in the Senate and go home? That's Mr. Sherman's proposition. People elect House. 
people represented House. States elect Senate. States be represented equally Senate. Do it. Done. Sherman. And at that point, um, the South Carolina delegation suggests that um, uh, we ought to be sensitive to the other side of the question. That is, whenever you have a representation issue, you have a taxation question. And there is a compromise which is made, and Mr. Wilson offers a compromise. And he says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we say popular representation plus three-fifths in the House? Let's vote on that. And they vote, and they say, all right. No talk about the question of three-fifths of a human being. It's the old taxation representation question. And Mr. Sherman says, all right, we've already agreed on that. Now it's your turn. Let's vote now. One state, one vote in the Senate. And it loses by a vote of six to five. And Mr. Wilson says, let's have then the same thing in the Senate. That is, popular representation plus three-fifths. And it passes by a vote of six to five. So on June the 11th is a very, very important day. It is the day that could have practically cut the convention discussions by six weeks. Because as we shall see tomorrow, July the 16th is the Connecticut Compromise. And the Connecticut Compromise is, in effect, Sherman's June 11th proposition on representation. But it was defeated on June 11th. And it was defeated mainly because there was a bigger issue involved. And the bigger issue involved was Madison attempting to establish, as a matter of justice, the principle of popular representation. Madison pushed and pushed, to, in, in a sense, to ask the following question. What is it about a state, qua state? What is it about a state as a state that deserves to be treated in the same way as a human being, qua human being? What is it about equal representation of states that's a matter of justice? I can understand equal representation of individuals as a matter of justice. I've read my declaration, or that's how I'm interpreting my declaration. But I don't read the declaration as a statement about equal states' representation, to which Mr. Martin says, well, then you haven't read some of the last part of the declaration, which suggests that you are free and equal states. Well, that's just a wartime document, says Mr. Wilson. Well, I'm not so sure about that, says Mr. Martin. And anyway, Mr. Sherman says, I'm here. <clears throat> and you ain't going to get rid of me. And I'm a household name. Although nobody 200 years from now will hear of me. I, I probably associate me with a tank. <laughs> yeah, and if you're lucky, little Madison, you'll have a square garden name after you. June 11th, then, is a very important day. It's an important day because Madison rejects, as a matter of principle, the notion of equal representation for the states in the Senate. Mr. Sherman is pushing the practical. You're not going to get rid of the states. They're there. They're now part of the fabric. They're part of the robust American system, which was established in 1776. Deal with it, Mr. Madison. And... It's also the incorporation of the three-fifths clause into the discussion at the convention. And I've tried to show you how that clause got into the, uh, in, into the conversation. And really, it had virtually nothing to do with the issue 
directly of slavery per se. It has every, mostly to do with the issue of taxation and representation. Slavery comes later, and it comes huge, but not on the three-fifths clause. It comes in a different way. Well, because Mr. Sherman didn't get his way, and Mr. Madison insisted on this principle, Mr. Sherman from Connecticut got together with Mr. Dickinson from Delaware, Mr. Luther Martin from uh, Maryland, and uh, two delegates from New York, Mr. Lansing and Mr. Yates. New York sent three delegates. Interesting. Some states sent seven delegates, some states sent four, some sent three, uh, very much like the, under the Articles. Some states sent three, some sent seven, but they each had one vote. So at the very time they're talking about overturning the structure of the Articles, they follow the, the, the rules of voting under the Articles. So that each state just had one vote. So if you read your Madison's notes, you'll see New Hampshire, yes, such and such, no, such and such, yes. But you don't know what each person did unless Madison gets really ticked off and then he names names. That's when you know he's ticked. Or joyful. Bah, ticked. Where was I? <laughs> Sign of a good student is a good memory. They get together. Thank you. Mr. Sherman gets together with Mr. Martin. Uh, oh, New York. And New York politics was very interesting. Upstate was... Uh, was one, one party, the other downstate was the other. Governor Clinton of New York was an opposer of centralized power. And the state legislature in New York selected three delegates, Alexander Hamilton and two to outvote him. And they were Lansing, <laughs> Lansing and Yates. And so Lansing and Yates got together, and, and New Jersey got together with Mr. Patterson, one of seven immigrants at the convention. Can you imagine? What a wonderful country, having letting seven immigrants create your constitution. I mean, this, I mean, so Mr. Patterson from New Jersey and the rest of got together, and they offered the New Jersey plan, or sometimes called the Patterson plan. And there's a wonderful footnote in Madison's notes, in which uh, it, Madison, by the way, has been accused of doctoring his notes. Here's another. Um, you know, people have made a lot of uh, uh, fame and fortune on coming up with various theses at times. And Sky Krosky came up with one, which says that Madison doctored his notes so they would look good. And uh, the looking good meant that Madison in his later years wanted to be viewed more as a states' rights person and less as a nationalist, and thereby come over to the Jeffersonian factions looking good, looking good. So he doctored his notes to, to pull down his strong nationalist views. Well, if he doctored his notes, he was a very poor doctor, because this is a wonderful footnote in which, in which Madison says, Mr. Dickinson comes to Mr. Madison and says, see, you've gone too far. We're at this, but yes? So that's on page 118. Page 118. Uh, and, right. Um, and it says, um, Mr. Dickinson said to Mr. Madison, you see the consequence of pushing things too far? And he says, we were willing to compromise. Not you. Not you, Mr. Madison. You've pushed things too far. And you only listened to Mr. Sherman on June the 11th. That would be it. We have a deal. So we don't have a deal. So we've got to start all at the beginning again. We'll introduce the New Jersey plan. So the New Jersey plan is introduced. And what does it do? It goes right back to the Articles of Confederation. Only the states are in structure. The people are out. 
Um, how about the powers? Well, we know, we know that there were two powers that the Articles didn't have. And we are here to say that they should have had. And only Rhode Island, which fortunately isn't here right now, and will never be, only Rhode Island ever objected to giving Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce and deny Congress the right to have an independent tax base. So what we're going to do is keep the structure of the articles. Keep the frame. We're not framers. Keep the frame, but add the powers. So the New Jersey plan keeps the structure of the articles, the frame of the articles, and adds two powers to the articles. The power to regulate interstate commerce and the power to have Congress an independent tax base. Whereas, Mr. Madison, you want to raise the whole building. You want to not just add some paint to the room. You want to add rooms. You want to add this. You want to do that, right? You don't have a, first of all, you have a license to do that. The Congress never gave you that license. But we'll talk about that a little later. Right now, we present this plan to you, New Jersey plan. And there's an argument about it. And Madison begs them, in the name of justice, in the name of justice, consent of the governed, the principles of the Declaration, don't do this. Don't do this. This is our one opportunity. Don't lose the opportunity. And they have a vote. And the New Jersey plan loses. Not by much, because now you have a cadre. The New York delegation, the Maryland delegation, Delaware, New Jersey, and Connecticut delegation. You got, they got a you got that, that delegate, bunch of delegates, and you got Mr. Sherman on a roll. But it gets defeated. But as part of the story of the defeat, and so on this note, we'll, 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 um, we'll t- sort of wind down uh, this Act One, is, uh, is, is, is Mr. Hamilton. Mr. Hamilton. And June 18th, presented a plan. Presented his plan, sometimes known as the Hamilton Plan. It can't be called the New York Plan because it would never have been presented by New York. And if you look at the voting that's going on at this time, you will see that there are only 11 votes. Rhode Island never showed up, so you'll never get full 13. And at this time, New Hampshire hadn't shown up. And the reason why it hadn't shown up is because it didn't have any money. Which is a very good American claim. Have you ever come up with a great idea to a dean? I thought, why this is a dean will say, you know what? It's a great, a great idea, but we have no money. So there were only there were only eleven states. In fact, you will never see any more than eleven states because in early July, the two delegates from New York left and went home to start the core of the anti-federalist opposition in New York. And so that left Alexander Hamilton just a yap without being able to vote. Although he was bold enough, as, ha- as Alex often is, or was, to sign his name at the end um, as a delegate from New York. But when you read that, it's just his name. It's not New York voting, because New York couldn't vote because they didn't have a quorum. But that was stop Hamilton, and, you know, because that's consent of the governor. Um, so you'll never have any more than 11 states. By the way, New Hampshire showed up, 
showed up after the Connecticut cop. We're here. We're here. It's over. It's over. <laughs> oh, I guess we go home now. Save some money. <laughs> So Hamilton delivers this speech in which he criticizes the New Jersey, New Jersey plan and he criticizes the Virginia plan. And uh, he just says, well, I think we should have a president and the president should be elected for life. <gasps> and, uh, well, I think the state governor should be elected by the, by the federal government. What? Uh, so the Virginia plan doesn't go far enough. And there's this is this thesis. I, I, I love to explain it because I, I think it's a great narrative. It's a great story, and we should be telling wonderful, noble stories. And, um, and there's this story that's told by one of our uh, political science in which the story goes something like this. Madison turned to Hamilton. So this is based on the idea that somehow Madison and Hamilton were, were one. That's like reading Publius back in, but never mind. Um, that Madison needed help. Why did he, what, what was going on? Well, Americans loved the middle ground. Presumes then the delegates wanted the middle ground. Right, right. So what we have, we have the Articles of Confederation here. And then Madison comes along and he presents the Virginia plan here. And Sherman presents, you know, the New Jersey plan, which looks like here. So that looks like this is the middle ground. The New Jersey plan looks like the middle ground. Just a bit more than the articles, a couple of bits of more power, but certainly not as far as the Virginia plan, which is going to violate the structure. So, Alex, help me out. No problem. <coughs> so what Hamilton does... <laughs> I'll just, can I open the door and keep yeah, running? <laughs> he says, well, that do. <laughs> and lo and behold, the Virginia plan emerges as the accepted plan to end Act One. Well, you know, I love that story. But the problem with that story is it's not true. No one changed their mind. The only person that changed his mind was Hamilton. He went home for a while, and then came back. The June 18th speech, I think, his, the beauty of the June 18th speech does not lie in its practical effect in shifting the delegates' vote. The beauty of the June 18th speech is if you read that, if you read the June 18th speech, as we have looked at with, with, uh, with Lucas and, and, and Chris, we've looked at the vices, looked at June 6th speech, and then you fast forward to Federalist 10. The June 18th speech is virtually... A fa- you, you can fast forward from that to, 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 to Hamilton's presidential articles. And that's where I think the beauty of the Hamilton speeches and, and the impact which it had on the delegates didn't come until August when they really got down seriously to talking about why they wanted a president. What they're talking about now is not why they want a president. What they're talking about now is where do the states fit into the structure and what kind of popular representation are we going to have. All the rest is going to be postponed until later. So that we start Act 2 tomorrow with the, the, somehow the notion 
that the curtain has come down and the Virginia plan has been victorious. And that's what we will leave, uh, we will leave the, uh, the story on, on that part. We have about five minutes or so, do you think? We can, do, we, do we take any, 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 anything anybody wants to ask? Yes. If anything understated, I think Washington's role uh, is very much, um, very much there, and not only behind. This. I'll give you two I'll give you three examples. Example number one is that at the end of the war, when he handed in his commission, and within a year or so after, he was raising the question of. What does it mean to be an American? Are, I mean, we were at least temporary Americans between 1776 and 1783, 1781. But what made, them, what made Americans Americans was a common enemy. Now, what are you going to be when the war is over? What, what are you going to do? I mean, this question of the American mind, I think, is fascinating. It's because, in a sense, there, was very, there, there wasn't much of an American mind before 1763. There was an emerging American mind between 1763 and 1776 with the emergence of the Continental in 1774, the Continental Resolves, all of those. There was an emergence beginning. And war has a way of uniting. And you rally and you, you see things in common. And what is happening in Massachusetts is, 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 some, is we Virginians take that seriously. That's an American phenomenon. You get also, you get the development of, uh, of, of an American sense with, um, with uh, the, the agreement by the various states to give up the hinterland, claims to the hinterland. That takes a little while, but you get something beginning to be American. I think Washington's challenge is, do you want to be an American? In fact, I would think that, again, I haven't done enough work on Washington, but I would think that, that Hamilton's opening paragraph, Washington would concur with. And it's that idea of the moment, right? And so behind the scenes, Madison is writing to Washington. In fact, one of his earliest drafts, I mean, a brief, brief draft of the vices, is in a letter to Randolph and a letter to Washington explaining what needs to be done. And Washington, so Washington is saying something has to be done, and I think Madison is, is suggesting that the Virginia plan is the answer. Uh, behind the scenes, Washington is, is, is doing things, and, he's, and he was very despondent at the beginning that the delegates are not going to show up or they're not going to get things done. And one of the things we will notice later on is that uh, something that I had, I had a great difficulty with. If, if Washington was so influential, why the heck didn't he speak up earlier? Because what we will see tomorrow is that for the next six weeks, they go into the doldrums, and that convention hangs in the battles. And, one, and Washington is writing in his diary, things ain't going so well. So I've been wondering about that, and I had a talk with Chris this afternoon, and we've had many talks about this, that, that um, somehow Washington's ability to let people discover their own ability is a behind-the-scenes sign of strength that I think is profound, and that, and that they finally got it, and they got it by themselves without the general having to say, do it. And I think that's a profound sense of, profound sense of, uh, sense of strength. Oh, that... Uh, 
I think they would have had a convention without him. I don't know that they would have had a successful convention without him. And I think that he had to be persuaded to go precisely because of that and rose to the occasion and understood that. And in fact, in the ratification debates, um, I know it's very sort of crude, uh, I mean, not crude in terms of vulgar, nasty, but crude in terms of embryo form, uh, campaign tactics, but they had a calendar. The, the Federalist Party created a calendar and had these 13 horses and, in the, and the, with a chariot and Franklin and Washington in the chariot. So that the whole point of Washington's endorsement of the campaign, of that, and sitting there. In fact, he, at the end, had to come off his seat and, and, and play a role at the convention to, because what happened is that uh, uh, Mason and Randolph peeled away. Um, McClurg and, and with left to go home for personal reasons. And that left Madison and Blair voting together and Mason and Randolph voting together. And the only way officially that, that Virginia then could cast a vote was for Washington to break the tie. And if he didn't care, or, that, or if I, you know, he could have just sat back and said, I mean, I'm, I'm the general, or you, you handle it. One theoretical point I do want to, 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 to sort of uh, mention before, before we leave. And I think one of the, because, and it kicked in with this idea of the learning curve. I think the founding 1763 to 1800. That's the more and more I've played with this, the more I've realized that this is a whole it's learning curve that's going on in, in, in here. Um, uh, and I think one of the, one of the issues that, that the, for me that's emerged is, is that it may, it may be very well true that in 1776, quote, we were all Whigs. As we were all anti-monarchists, we knew exactly what to do. Bam. But then I think a, cha a change occurred. And it can be expressed by Madison's work in the 1780s in his vices, in which he turns to the Sherman folks and says, you guys are living in the 70s. We're in the 80s. You're living in the 70s in the sense that you know, you're still fighting minority rule. You're still fighting those in power. Darn it, don't you realize we won that battle? The battle is now, how do you, how do you make democracy safe for the world? All right? And if you do make democracy safe for the world, maybe one guy sometime in the early 20th century will come up with the inane idea of making the world safe for democracy. <laughs> See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>